Coming up on Let's Clear the Air. The renewables are growing. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, good for them. You know, they're they're growing. Wind and solar. I have solar panels on the roof of my house. But they are not making a significant dent in hydrocarbon use. Welcome to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast. Conversations focused on how some of the world's top energy leaders are innovating to deliver clean, affordable, and reliable energy for the future. Your hosts are energy and climate expert, Dr. Andrew Parker, and midstream industry veteran, Adam Murray. Now, here are Andrew and Adam. Hey, welcome back to the Let's Clear the Air podcast. I'm Andrew Parker, alongside Adam Murray. Thanks for tuning in for this episode, and you're in for a real treat today. Uh, we've got one of the big energy thinkers, a great voice, an advocate for the industry. He does a great job sharing his message at robertbryce.substack.com. So Robert Bryce is a fellow podcast host. Uh, if you guys haven't done so already, we encourage you to check out the Power Hungry podcast. Um, Robert, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Let's Clear the Air. Thanks a million, Adam. Glad to be with you. So Robert, we we always like to start off with a little icebreaker, kind of an either or question. And, and you're active on uh, various forms of social media. And so I'm curious, LinkedIn or Twitter? What is your your preferred platform? I am have to say LinkedIn. Um, you know, I've been on Twitter for now 14 years. And wow. um, I don't know, there's some things that, he, you know, Elon Musk has done on Twitter that I think are good. There are other things that I think, well, you know, he's just kind of a madman. And um, you know, on again, off again, block Substack on sub, and I'm on Substack now, robertbrice.substack.com. Uh, and and a, and a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago, he blocked people who are on Twitter from you know linking to Substack. And I thought, I well, that. wait a damn minute, you know, are you going to block access to New York Times? And you know, it was just one of these things. Anyway, so enough about Twitter. But LinkedIn, I just find the the conversations are more adult. Um, and, uh, it's also the demographic I'm trying to reach, I think more yeah. than, than Twitter. I think Twitter skews younger and the LinkedIn mm. crowd is much more of a professional crowd and more respectful. So, uh, it's not anonymous. Know, <laughs> yeah, it's not anonymous. That's right. And, uh, and also, you know, and I'm, but I'm on, I'm on TikTok, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm the king of all media, but I, you know, as far as impact and the people that I think, I mean, can help me grow my audience they're on LinkedIn. Perfect. Yeah, I don't do Twitter, so I guess I can't weigh in a whole lot here, but um, I'll do lucky, Twitter for, lucky you. <laughs> for a reason. Okay, so, you know, Robert, I, I think you, you have a great message to share across your platforms. And, you know, really the goal of this podcast is to talk about, um, you know, specifically what, what the midstream uh, industry is doing to create a better energy future for, you know, next the next generation of, of uh of our country and, and quite frankly, the planet. And, and we thought we'd start off with some higher level conversations about sure. just what the clean energy transition looks like from, from various perspectives. And so, you know, like one of the first questions we thought about asking you was from your book, Power Hungry, where you kind of talk about how renewables really can't meet the energy demands yet. And um, their costs have kind of come down and people are saying that's one way that uh, renewables are, uh, can be competitive with fossil fuels, right? So, so kind of how do you respond to that argument that renewable energy is becoming maybe a little more uh, competitive with fossil fuels from a cost perspective? Sure. 
Well, lots to unpack there, Andrew. I yeah, mean, yeah. Know, broad question to start, think, right? Think we started with an easy one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, let's start with this idea of cost competitiveness. The reality is that solar and wind, from the very beginning, from when they start, first started making significant uh, additions to the electric grid in the U.S., it's always been subsidy driven, always been subsidy driven. And you've had people in the industry say, oh, without subsidy, we can't, we won't do this. Warren Buffett himself, remember, in 2014 said the only reason to build wind turbines is to collect the tax credits. Mm -hmm. So what have we seen, and I've documented this, you know, now close to 500 times across the country where local governments are restricting or rejecting wind and solar projects. Um, now close to, I think it's close to 400 rejections of wind, over 100 rejections of solar. These don't, these don't match the narrative that the New York Times and NPR and Washington Post and the legacy media outlets promote. And I say that as somebody who's been in journalism my whole career. I've, I've never had a real job. I've always been a reporter. I used to think the liberal media was a, you know, was a fiction. It's not. They will not honestly cover the land use conflicts that are happening in rural America and the rejections of wind and solar that are happening all over the country. And, this, and the coverage they've done has just been terrible. I mean, some of the worst journalism I've ever seen. The renewables are growing. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, good for them. You know, they're, they're growing. Wind and solar. I have solar panels on the roof of my house. But they are not making a significant dent in hydrocarbon use. And in fact, you can look back to the timeline, whatever you want. Last year, uh, 2021, back to the last 30 years, hydrocarbon growth both here in the U.S. and globally continues to grow faster than the growth in wind and solar combined. And it's really not even close. There is no way to scale. And you've done a really nice job talking about the supply chains, right? right. Minerals, critical minerals, right? Um, you, you had a, a great article about uh, the, the book Cobalt Red, which I can't believe has not gotten more coverage um, outside of, you know, uh, LinkedIn and, and smaller channels, right? I haven't heard many people talking about it. So, you know, why do you think that is? Um, why why are we losing the conversation as the, the energy industry can't seem to, to get its point across that it's not an energy transition, it's, it's an energy, it's energy addition? Well, yeah, I, there are a lot of things there too, Andrew, that we can talk about, but this idea that the energy industry is losing, I think that that's probably true in some regards in terms of what you was read in the, in the big media outlets, legacy media that, and also in policy. And, and we can look at, in fact, these natural gas bans that have been implemented across the country from, you know, 75 of them. I wrote a piece on mm -hmm. Substack just a, a bit ago about the fact that the ninth circuit rejected, in fact, uh, uh, deemed it was illegal with the city of Berkeley's ban on natural gas. Well, so that means that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, no, this is this is this violates federal law, the 1975 uh, Energy Policy and Conservation Act. And yet I, I didn't see anything in The New York Times about that. The Wall, nope. Street, Journal, the Wall Street Journal covered it. Right. But, but this is a really important decision. So I want to make a make clear that on the one hand, I think you're right that the industry is not been effective in getting its its messaging out. But let's be clear, the money and it is a staggering amount of money and the media sympathy. And it is not even close in terms of the media sympathy and the momentum is all on the other side. And by that, I mean, on the left, on what I call the anti-industry industry. I wrote a piece on Substack and with that very title, the anti-industry industry. On uh, robertbryce.substack.com, 
that points out that, in fact, the, the anti-industry industry, the Environmental Defense Fund, Sierra Club, the rest of them, you, you, uh, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, Rewiring America, uh, uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, you add up all their budgets, it's $4.5 billion a year. They're, they're spending four times more than what I call the pro-hydrocarbon, pro-nuclear groups or traditional energy groups, including yep. the think tanks. So the, in, the energy industry as a whole, the hydrocarbon sector, I don't use fossil fuels, hydrocarbon sector is being outspit massively. And because of that, well, it's no surprise you're getting your butts kicked. I mean, let's be clear, you know, it's yeah. just not the, the money being spent here is so lopsided, lopsided. And of course, that fact will never be reported by the New York Times in any way in a fair way. So you're facing a massive disp uh, disparity in money and a massive disparity in terms of media sympathy. And because a lot of these reporters, and I'd say this is a reporter, they don't know anything about the energy and power networks and, and or the energy and, or the scale of our energy and power systems. <clears throat> so they see a press release from the Sierra Club and they, oh, it must be right. So they report it. And that's what we, that's what has happened. Well, that brings up a great point, Robert. Um, yeah, I, I feel like we're all kind of on the same page. I, I feel like the word transition is very... Um, adversarial, right? I mean, it pits one industry against another and that kind of thing when we all know it's an energy expansion or addition, as we've said here. Um, so to that point, whether it's hydrocarbons, um, nuclear energy, um, you know, uh, any type of, of energy addition, right? Um, when you're talking or reporting or writing you know, how do you approach those that are on the other side of the line? I mean, I think that's Really, we're trying to just share facts and we're really trying sure. to keep the moral case going, as Alex Epstein put in his book. But I mean, you know, as a reporter, you kind of had a responsibility to 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 remain neutral a little bit, I guess. But, um, you know, how did you approach the, the the other side of the line on these type of arguments? Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's it's a great question, Adam. And I think you have to start from the understanding that there are, uh, there's a large cadre that you will never convince Right, because yeah. this is, in <clears throat> fact, in the, the even in the terminology, a, a religious fight, a cultural fight, right? And remember when the gas stove ban controversy was raging back in January, there were a lot of headlines of, oh, the gas bans are, or gas stoves are latest chapter in culture war, right? Well, I think in some ways it is right. That is exactly right. It is a culture war. And it's a the, the there are two cultures, as C.P. Snow wrote in the 1950s. On the one side are the the engineers or the scientists, and on the other side are the humanities majors from Bryn Mawr. I mean, you know, yep. I'm, I'm exaggerating right. here a little bit, but but C.P. Snow is a British novelist and 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 lecturer. Was a famous famous lecture called "The Two Cultures." So you have these two cultures, but you also have a very religious element in terms of the anti-hydrocarbon. Uh, climate catastrophist groups, and I say that I don't. I think that's a proper way to to label them, mm -hmm. in that they uh, believe we have sinned. We humans have sinned. We've sinned against the earth. We have to repent. We have to go back in time. We have to go back to the garden. So there are many overlaps, many parallels between this idea of sin and sins and sin and redemption and carbon credits. Ad, uh, right. uh, Martin Luther would recognize carbon credits. I mean, you know, this is a very that when you look at this in terms of belief systems, then the this is very much a, a religious fight because this rise of environmentalism and what I would call earth worship and the catastrophism around climate 
has gone up dramatically at the same time that traditional church going has gone down dramatically. Right. So these are things that are happening simultaneously. And we have a lot of people have to believe in something. And so this idea that we're sinful and because we're living too well fits very neatly in this kind of the, what Jonathan Haidt calls the God-shaped hole in our hearts. People have to believe something. So I, I, my response kind of broadly to what your question, Adam, and you, Andrew, is the same is that, you know, people in the industry don't lose hope. Don't lose, don't lose sight of the fact that this is an essential industry, right? This is critical, absolutely yeah. fundamental to our culture, to our society. And it may be demonized, routinely is, and intact all the time. But that doesn't, in certain ways, it doesn't matter because you just still got to bear on. You know, you just got to keep on because we need those <laughs> electrons and molecules and, 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 and we need them every day. So I'll stop there, but I could keep, I could, could go back on, I could go on that one for a long time too. You sure, sure. Hitting, hitting all my, hitting all my sensitive spots here. Divestment from fossil fuels and hydrocarbons is, is a thing, right? We, yeah, we, right. we've seen it in legislature all over the place. Um, but do you see this in the coming years having a significant impact on the industry? Well, um, it is having a significant impact on on siting in particular. And, you know, GPA midstream folks know it's not easy to site pipelines. And in fact, it's damn hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, in fact, the EIA, uh, Andrew mentioned the EIA earlier, they reported that in, in 2022, there were the fewest number of miles of pipeline built in America since they started tracking this, I guess, back in the 90s, something like 300 miles. I mean, de minimis additions to the pipeline network. What does that mean? Well, it means a couple things, I think. One is that the, the uh, as I see it, because of land use conflicts broadly, and they're not, of course, not just about the siting of, wind, of, of, of oil and gas pipelines or the oil wells themselves. It's also about wind turbines, solar panels, you know, high voltage transmission. What that says to me is that the, the electric grid and the power grid, the power grid that we have, the, the oil and gas networks, the, the pipeline grids that we have are the grids we're going to have. The ones we have now are the ones we're going to have in the future. So we have to utilize them the, uh, to the maximum. And second, I just want to just jump back, if you don't mind, Adam, at one point that I thought to add to this idea about the cultural fight. It's an asymmetric war or an asymmetric cultural fight. So the other side, and I'm gonna say, put me on, on the pro-hydrocarbon, pro-abundant energy side. Sure. The other side, the, the energy catastrophist, the climate catastrophist, all they have to do is push policy. Whereas the people who are in the energy sector have to deliver um, um, electrons and molecules. They have to live in the physical world. Whereas the, the catastrophist, the climate catastrophist, the activist, the NGO crowd, all, they only live in the policy world. They don't have to do anything in the physical world. They don't have to deliver anything. And because of that, it's an easier fight. They have the advantage because they right. don't have to do anything in the real world. They don't have to cite anything. They don't have to build anything. They don't have to buy copper or steel or get a permit. All they have to do is push policy. Much easier battle. Yeah, I think what's the saying? Uh, there's, no, there's no logical argument that can be an emotional one, right? And it feels like the climate conversation and the conversation we're having about energy and the environment is very emotional. And, yeah. and people, people don't want to hear the other side because of these deep beliefs. I, I thought earth worship was a really interesting term you just used. And I want to, you know, I, I have kind of a two-part question. So I'm going to ask the first one. And again, 
asking broad questions just to try to help set the stage for some of the, the listeners who may not be very familiar with this conversation. But when I have conversations, I have a younger brother and sister, both are, are under 30. And when I try to have conversations with people that age, I try to be very factual, try to take the politics out of it. And for me, the, the place that I've become, I feel like is, is kind of the place where I think we can effectively message is around some of the materials that are required, right? And I kind of mentioned yeah. it earlier a little bit, but you know, when you look at, you know, with oil and gas, we control our own destiny here in the US, right? The second we have to start relying on other co uh, countries for minerals, critical minerals, and then you look at the manufacturing and the dominance that China has on that, that industry, you know, it, it's kind of scary, right? And, and, and I think you look at the geopolitical environment right now with countries like France going to China, just, you know, saying, hey, we don't want to be a part of any conflict between you and, you know, the U.S., so, so maybe, and, and I know this is super broad, but you've done such a great job talking about critical minerals and the geopolitical uh, ramifications of clean energy technologies. In a couple minutes, do you know what, what do you think are some of the highlights of that discussion that people should look into more? Sure. Well, the so it's the three M's: metals, minerals, and magnets. Um, and China dominates, dominates. The uh, De Department of Energy did a great uh, report, one of the best I've ever seen, and I've looked at a lot of them. It came out in February of last year, in which they laid it out in a very uh, clear-eyed manner, pointing out that China now controls something like 90% of the global market for neodymium iron boron magnets. Well, these are the high-strength magnets that are critical to electric vehicles. These are also the magnets that you see um, uh, that are needed for uh, uh, this new generation of wind turbines. So you add in that as well as the, the supply chain for uh, polysilicon, which is needed for solar, um, and you, 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 know, you end up looking around and saying, wait a minute, this, the entire alt energy movement, I don't call it green energy, I don't call it clean energy, I don't say fossil fuels or hydrocarbons. The alt energy crowd, they are want America to hitch its entire industry, entire economy to Chinese supply chains. And I can't say it more plainly than that. That mm -hmm. is the fact. And there have been some stories about the magnet issue, and this is key. So neodymium iron boron magnets, yeah, it's, it's a little wonky, right? But these are the high strength magnets. They're usually doped with dysprosium and terbium to make them function better at high, at high temperature. But those are absolutely critical ingredients, not just in wind turbines and, uh, and, and EVs, but for defense applications, for your automobile, uh, you know, the windows, your, your car windows, the, those motors, use, those use neodymium iron boron magnets. We have no supply chain in the United States for that. None, zero, big fat, nothing. And yet this alt energy crowd just wants to, just wants to ignore that and say, oh, we're going to cede our supply chains to China. Are you out of your ever loving mind? What are you thinking? No, absolutely no, not under any circumstances. What is the tipping point for when we finally start to have that conversation in a mainline fashion? Like, where do you think the inflection point is? in that i think it's already begun andrew i think yeah. there is and you know there was some there's a some polling data that came out in uh in april um in early april from the university of chicago 
which I thought was fascinating because I think it shows the disconnect between the rhetoric and voter reality. Um, and it found something like less than 40%, I think it was the number was 38% of Americans were, are willing to pay even $1 for action on climate change. Less than 40%. You know, in any election, a 60% swing, that's a landslide. Where mm -hmm. here you have less than 40% are willing even to spend $1. The number the people or the percentage of people is willing to spend $100 is then something on the order of 20%. So, you know... I think, you know, one of the messages I think I want to make sure I, I, I repeat this again is that just because what you hear <laughs> is the popular narrative doesn't mean that's what the majority of Americans believe, right? Because, yep. and, and why is that? Because there is so much money to be made by the wind and solar sectors and by some of the biggest corporations in America, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, cashing in massively on the investment tax credit, production tax credit, Next Era Energy, the biggest producer of renewable energy in the world, cashing in massively on it on the investment tax credit, production tax credit. They have PR firms, they are spending massively to c keep this drum roll going. So the people in the hydrocarbon sector, yeah, they're getting overwhelmed, but just because you hear a lot of the rhetoric doesn't necessarily mean the majority of Americans believe what you're, you know, this messaging. Well, so that leads us to, you know, and the, and the China and I'll just, I'm sorry, but the China yeah. issue is getting a lot more focus now because of, uh, you know, Russia, you know, cozying up to China and, you know, Macron and France, you know, they're French, right? Whatever, you know, the French are, <laughs> are going to do French things and they're going to do it. So, but yeah. I think these supply chain issues are getting more attention and they, well, they should, I think, but we're still, as, as Andrew, you made a good point. Even if we take this to heart and say, damn, we're really vulnerable here. It's going to be a very difficult issue to address because it's going to be a decadal uh, re require a decadal commitment and investment. Robert, we need to take a break and thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Let's Clear the Air, a public education campaign of GPA Midstream Association and GPSA Midstream Suppliers. The midstream industry helps power the lives of 330 million Americans by working around the clock to provide reliable energy, counteract climate change, and strengthen our country's economy. Let's Clear the Air is about promoting a constructive dialogue on the future of energy. Learn more and join the conversation at letscleartheairnow.org. Now, back to Andrew and Adam. We, we just got a couple more questions here. Sure. We want to be mindful of the time, but uh, before we transition, Andrew's got a question, but Robert Bryce uh, at substack.com, check out uh, Robert Bryce's blog. Um, he's we're, we're referencing a lot of your writing, so I, I highly recommend everyone go there. So Andrew, what do you got? Yeah, the, the, the conversation you guys are just having, I thought might be a, a good final uh, thing to ask you about, Robert, because again, something... I like to talk to people about, and I, I frequently cite information that you provide is the energy grid, right? We can electrify everything. Let's say we solve these problems and we can scale all alternative energies and electrify everything. There is still a massive uh, hurdle to overcome with respect to the grid, right? And you've done a lot of, of reporting on that. So again, uh, 50,000 foot view maybe helps set the stage for the casual listener of this podcast who may not be uh, very knowledgeable or up to, to speed with, you know, the state of our energy grid. 
But sure. why is that also a risk point when we're talking about electrifying our economy? Sure. Well, a couple of things, uh, starting points there, and that's a good, uh, a good, good issue uh, for me. And it's something I've my latest book, A Question of Power. I've you know I've been really focusing on electricity and the electric grid for now for the last four or five years. Um, remember, the electric demand in the United States hasn't grown in almost twenty years. We've been using about four thousand terawatt hours. Uh, per year since the, the early 2000s. And so while we've expanded the amount of generation capacity, we've added a whole bunch of, you know, 200 million, uh, well, let me see, yeah, 0.2 terawatts to 200 million megawatts of capacity, but we haven't increased the amount of electricity we're consuming. So these moves to electrify everything, and in particular transportation, which we talked earlier about the Biden administration's back backdoor, back, you know, backhanded effort to require automakers to make more EVs. Well, shifting the, the massive amount of energy that we consume in the form of gasoline and diesel fuel onto the electric grid will require massive upgrades to the grid at a time when the grid is already faltering under existing demand. You've had numerous uh, um, uh, uh, grid operators, RTOs, saying in the past few weeks, in fact, uh, PJM, MISO saying, we're short capacity. We're retiring coal plants and we don't know how we're going to replace them. So this idea that we're just going to electrify everything ignores both a, a looming shortfall of, gen of, of dispatchable generation capacity. And one other thing we haven't talked about in terms of the supply chain is this massive inflation in utility products and shortages of transformers. And this is, again, something I wrote on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com, uh, called Untransformed. There is a shortage in some cases, waiting times of up to two years for distribution transformers. Mm -hmm. So you, we add more electric vehicles, well, you're going to require massive amounts of new transformers, and that, that supply chain is massively constrained due to shortages of specialty steel, and in particular, shortages of labor. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I had uh, I had heard a an interesting statistic, kind of to your point, um, from someone who who's pretty high up at, at Excel Energy. You know, one of the challenges for them is how do you plan? You know, what is what does the future look like? And right, you know, they said something like today, the average American gets twenty five percent of their energy uh, from the grid. Yeah. And in 2050, they're planning for that number to be 75% of your energy dependency on the grid. It's just kind of like, it's a massive number that's really hard to calibrate, right? Well, and again, this goes back to land use and land use conflicts. And this, this supposition that we're going to have this massive increase in electricity availability because we're going to be producing more electricity from wind and solar all assumes that you're going to be able to make a massive increase in the, in the size of the high voltage transmission grid. And that's just simply not going to happen. I mean, I've written about this as well, uh, a piece called Out of Transmission uh, on my Substack, pointing out that the number of miles to, at current rates to just increase the size of the, the electric grid by 60% would take something like 50 years. I mean, mm -hmm. these expansions are very difficult to make because people don't want these high voltage transmission uh, projects. They don't want them across their town or across their county or across their state. Mm -hmm. So projects like I can give you chapter and verse, Grain Belt Express has been pending now for 10 years, still isn't built because all across Missouri, local communities are saying they don't want it. State of Iowa uh, uh, in 2017 passed a bill prohibiting the use of eminent domain by private high voltage transmission companies. So. You know, these battles are happening all across the country and they're happening in the physical world, not in the policy world. And that's where the conflict is. Wow, that's this conversation has been a lot and I appreciate everything 
let's say, you know, three years from now, you're back on the show. We're happy. Everything's good. But it's going to take three years for you to invite me back. What did I say <laughs> wrong? What? I mean, you're not going oh, to no. get an invite in a few months. We can talk some more. What, Absolutely. Man? We're going to do right, that. You guys yeah. are hard. Greg me on the curve here. Come on. All right. Let's do a two-parter six months okay. from now okay, and also three years from now. There you go. Sure. Uh, what's happened in the energy world to make you happy? Well, I mean, look, you... <laughs> the US is incredibly blessed. And if we only have to look at Germany or France or Britain, I mean, they're all in dire straits because they've made themselves too dependent on Russian gas and Russian uh, hydrocarbons more generally. And now they're in a world of hurt. So one of the things that I am very optimistic about is the prospects for the United States. I am a homer. I mean, all day long. The United States has I've said this many times before, but the US, we have multiple advantages over the rest of the world uh, on many different fronts, demographics, geography, uh, rule of law, energy abundance, uh, you know, compared to the rest of the world, we have a, a I mean, a great a number of cards to play. And my concern is that we're going to screw it up um, mm -hmm. with a lot of bad policy. And that's why I have the bit in my teeth and why I, I, this is my purpose in life. This is why I'm passionate about these issues. I care about them because they are so important. The energy industry is the biggest and most important industry on the planet and every other industry depends on it. But what we are facing now is a, is a cadre of anti-industry industry groups that have staggering amounts of money and they are pushing policies that are harmful to the poor and the middle class. And that's who I care about. I care about the guys who turn wrenches, the people who turn wrenches, the people who pour coffee and drive to work and have to, you know, be there and wear and have their and wear name tags with their names on them. I care about those people. Mm -hmm. I know we've I know we've we've touched on a lot of topics at a high level, and, and I think hopefully people who listen to this can go to robertbrice.substack.com and check out some of the articles that we cited. Of, of yours to get more information about the grid, about minerals, about um, the NGOs, right? I mean, you you do such a great job covering this. And, and if I could just interject, you know, I hope that people who listen to this don't think that any of this is anti-clean energy, anti-alt-energy. -alt it's just the opposite, right? Like we need to be having these conversations to advance those initiatives. And, um, you know, thank you, so much for coming on and and helping us uh, set the the stage and kind of the narrative for this podcast because a lot of these topics will be important as we kind of move forward in, in conversations with futures future guests and um, Robert, thank you uh, from from Adam and myself and and GPA Absolutely. midstream. Um, we really appreciate your time today. No, it's great fun, fellas. You know, I, I get I get going. You know, I get the Joel Osteen in there. So I've been, uh, <laughs> well, maybe uh, maybe know. in six months we'll have you on. We'll do something like Joe Rogan style, and we can go for three four hours. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, fellas. I appreciate it. Take care. Well, that'll do it for this episode, Andrew. What are your takeaways from this? Uh, I wish we had like another three hours <laughs> to get into some of the, the topics that we, we kind of covered at a really high level, but um, man, what a treat to talk to Robert. He's such a, a great voice for, you know, the industry and does such a great job of just, I think taking like a middle of the ground approach to the conversation, like he said, fact-based, easy to understand. And, and hopefully people, you know, heard some interesting things and, and they can go to his, his sub stack and, and read more on them. I couldn't agree more. So 
Well, don't forget, everyone, we'd like to hear uh, from you on guest suggestions, questions about the midstream industry or comments. Um, you can connect with Andrew or I on LinkedIn. Um, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Let's Clear the Air. Thank you for listening to the Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast with Adam Murray and Dr. Andrew Parker. If you like what you have heard, subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. You can email us with questions or comments to Let's Clear the Air Energy Podcast at gmail.com.